Thirty years ago, in April of 1990, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger had the following to say about John Henry Newman. Throughout his entire life, Newman was a person converting, a person being transformed, and thus he always remained and became ever more himself. Here the figure of St. Augustine comes to my mind, with whom Newman was so associated. When Augustine was converted in the garden, he thought that his past sinful life would now be definitively cast off. From now on, the convert would be someone wholly new and different, and his further journey would be a steady climb to the ever-purer heights of closeness to God. Augustine's actual experience was a different one. He had to learn that being a Christian is always a difficult journey with all its heights and depths. In the idea of development, Newman had written his own experience of a never-finished conversion and interpreted for us not only the way of Christian doctrine, but that of the Christian life. The characteristic of the great doctor of the church, it seems to me, is that he teaches not only through his thought and speech, but also by his life, because within him, thought and life are interpenetrated and defined. If this is so, then Newman belongs to the great teachers of the church, because he both touches our hearts and enlightens our thinking. That's Cardinal Ratzinger. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. So today we'll begin a set of four episodes devoted to the life and work of Cardinal John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Newman, as of this past October. And we just wrapped up about five episodes on St. Augustine, and so now we move on to Newman, which is fitting because they're often associated, as we just heard from from Joseph Ratzinger. So I'm excited to begin this stretch of four episodes on Newman. Just to give you an idea of who he was, in case you're unfamiliar, he was basically rooted in the 19th century, born in London, England in 1801. He became a very well-known writer, controversialist, and Anglican clergyman. And then to, you know, to the surprise of, of quite a number of people, in the middle of the 19th century, Newman uh, became a Catholic. He came into communion with the Church of Rome, which was uh, uh, of seismic impact to the Church of England and to the Catholic you know, um, establishment of the time as well. So he, he becomes a Catholic. Uh, he waits a couple of years and he becomes uh, ordained a priest and he founds an oratory. And so the oratorians were founded by St. Philip Neri. And Newman established um, uh, an oratorian community in England. And then, you know, there, there's a lot that goes on, but just the quick version. He, he's toward the end of his life named a cardinal by Pope Leo XIII, uh, which is why so many of us, uh, including myself, often refer to him as Cardinal Newman. And he's known for quite many things. Um, his works are still read today, especially his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which is something of an autobiographical account of his life, though within a certain controversial um, context um, in his being uh, challenged by a certain uh, 
uh, writer in England, England at the time. So in a way, his apologia is, is a self-defense and uh, but really a, an explanation of his what he would call his religious opinions. Um, many people have encountered his poem, which has been made into a hymn, Lead Kindly Light. And most recently, he was beatified by Pope Benedict XVI, the aforementioned Cardinal Ratzinger. And then again, just this past October, Pope Francis canonized uh, St. John Henry Newman. And so I'm excited personally to be able to put these four episodes uh, before you. And I, and I hope you, you get to know Newman better over, over these episodes. Today, we'll be looking at John Henry Newman and his relationship with other Christians, non-Catholic Christians, which, of course, you know, given his biography is particularly interesting, given that he was such a, a committed and well-known and influential Anglican clergyman and then a Catholic convert and priest and cardinal. And throughout his life, he was in constant uh, discourse and engagement with those outside uh, the Catholic Church. And so it'll be interesting to consider his relationship and thinking about non-Catholic Christians in ways that he would um, critique, but also appreciate the devotion and fervor and faith of those uh, not in full communion with the Church of Rome, as he eventually was in his life. Today, uh, we have a great guest, uh, someone known for his his knowledge and expertise uh, and deafness when it comes to Cardinal Newman. Our guest today is David Devil, who is editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and is a visiting professor in Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas. He holds a PhD in theology from Fordham. And today, again, we're going to talk about uh, Newman and his relationship with non-Catholic Christians. So here's David. You know, his first conversion was at the age of 15 when he was in school. Uh, an Anglican clergyman who was the headmaster, Walter Mayers, gave him a number of books from 18th century greats like uh, William Law and Thomas Scott and William Beveridge. And they were really practical works. And so his, although he describes in the Apologia his his conversion as basically the, an impression of dogma, it was also dogma that was alive with a real moral fervor as well. Um, he says in the Apologia that his, his two mottos that he got from Thomas Scott of Aston Sanford were growth the only evidence of life and holiness before peace. And so there was a real sense that these, these were dogmas that lived. And so he was dedicated to what the Lord was giving him. Uh, and he experienced his first conversion kind of in the atmosphere of Anglican evangelicals with a kind of Calvinist bent. And as he grew, grew in his faith, um, as particularly as he went to Oxford uh, and started to look at particular doctrines, some of the more specifically Calvinistic viewpoints fell away. He says particularly double predestination um, and you know the perseverance of the saints. And yet he knew that these people were serious Christians as well, even if they were, as Thomas Scott was, uh, Calvinists. And so he had a real sense of the holiness of other Christians around him, such that even as he developed more and, and found what he thought was a more Catholic, more authentically Christian viewpoint, he did not leave those people behind. Uh, when he became a clergyman in 1825, um, he actually started praying uh, daily a prayer for uh, for all Christians and for Christian unity. Um, and he joined groups like the Bible Society, which was an interdenominational group centered on 
studying scripture. And it was only later as he realized that that sort of Bible alone foundation could admit a variety of heretical viewpoints that he started to shift away from that. But even as he did that, he nevertheless acknowledged uh, the reality of faith of many of these people. He just thought that particular, particular constructions of faith, which didn't have a kind of Catholic fullness to them, were vulnerable to the, to the inroads of what we would call secularization and of what he would call infidelity. Um, so that background you know, increased, uh, increased his capacity both to make distinctions but also to make appreciation of what the Lord was doing. And it was through his conversion experience that he had to sort of make sense out of what was going on. Uh, even, as he, even as he understood that he had to become a Catholic, he still sensed the holiness of many of the individuals and the goodness of many of the things that were found in the Anglican church, but also in many of the other uh, dissenting groups, you know, what we call free church Protestant groups. Um, and and also the, the the Orthodox as he had experienced them on trips to the Mediterranean. And you know, considering his own his own path, why does he feel it necessary for him? Why is he convinced in his conscience that he ought to become a Catholic? Um, well, he yeah. Why does he think he has to be? I think he he determined that there was a reality uh, to the church, and he he knew that there was first. He sensed that there was a a Catholic viewpoint, right? That there was a fullness, right? Kata holon, according to the whole. Mm -hmm. um, and then as he discerned that, he discerned that there really is a church. And as he, as he found that, he thought at first that, well, the Anglican church is just that branch of the church that is in England. But the more that he looked at the history of the church, the more he discerned that the early church was united. There were sure there were plenty of groups that were outside, but they had a they had an understanding of the church as one, not just in a sort of generic sense of one in belief or one in well we can trace our bishops' um, papers back to the apostles. It wasn't just apostolic in that sense, but there was a real Catholicity uh, of polity as well. And so one of his great discoveries was that the church is a kingdom. And a kingdom is one that is united, not just in these ways, but also has a central government and a central reality and a way of being. And there might be difficulties with that, but he believed that that was, that was what happened, not only in the New Testament, but also in the patristic era. And so it was the discovery that there were, there were hints of that that made him doubt whether a church that is sort of not in real communion with the rest of the church as the Anglican church was, maybe isn't part of that. And he thought that the, the Orthodox, through his experiences with them, didn't have that fullness of Catholicity either because many times they were not even in communion with each other. And what he saw as that central place of unity was the church that was centered around uh, the See of Peter, uh, the See of, of Rome. So he, he eventually he believed that, no, I really have to be a part of this church. Uh, despite the difficulties with bad popes and other sorts of things, that, that was what he came to. And it's interesting that you bring up the pope. Um, I'm wondering, how does he reconcile sort of historical instances of bad popes or, or sort of ineffective papacies with his understanding of the Catholic Church as the body of Christ, as the fullness, as you're saying, yeah. of, of Christ's revelation? So how does he reconcile all that? 
Yeah, I mean, his understanding, I mean, I think, uh, you know, in Bud Marr's book from last year about Newman's developing ecclesiology, he kind of depicts Newman as more ultramontane, more looking, you know, across the Alps to the Pope uh, earlier on and having a greater skepticism later. And I think there, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think he was aware that he had to get around the difficulties of bad popes early on. Uh, but I think that he thought that this was compatible with an understanding of the, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, where a kingdom is still a kingdom and you still have to stick with it, even if the king is bad. And so with the church, papacies can be bad and have many problems with them, but somehow you have to keep that, keep that communion. Um, he developed a concept that he, he identifies in several works as a kind of a suspension of the magisterium. And so, so he says, you know, particularly during the Arian crisis at times, some of the popes were so sort of beset by these problems that they sort of ceased to teach or act in any effective way. Uh, and he thought that that was, just, that was just a part of the nature of the church, which can on its human side almost, he says, go to sleep or almost die, and then all of a sudden it springs back. And the same is true with the papacy itself. Uh, so he, he was a great realist about this, about abuses of power, about failures. Uh, but nevertheless, he, his general rule was, you know, stand still and wait for the Lord and, and things will change. And so what does Newman see as being the, the main differences or the main dividing points between Catholics and all other Christians? What, what does he see as sort of the fault lines that would emerge by, under a close investigation? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, uh, one way of thinking about it that many Protestants have is that it's basically about this doctrine of justification. Uh, but even as an Anglican, he sort of ceased to believe that. His 1837 lectures on justification uh, basically, you know, said, well, basically all... <laughs> All serious theologians have always understood that all of these aspects of justification, in, in, you know, imputation and infusion and all of these things, these all play a part in it. But ultimately, justification involves the divine presence in the human being. And so he kind of cut through all the debates and said, look, all serious, all serious theologians agree at one level. And and it's not something that he he uh, shied away from saying as a Catholic either, and he would often point back to those lectures and say, "No, I think everybody, every serious divine, you know, theologian, agrees on this." He's like, "Yes, popular preachers, they're going to say something different, but anybody who's really looked at the matter is going to say that's not it." So what he what he eventually came to think, uh, I, the the difficulty is is you know I mean it's different in different ways, but between Catholics and Protestants. In one way, it can be summed up in, in a couple of images he gives in the Apologia. He says that at a certain point, you know, during this, this, these last years, he came to realize that there were two images of Christian truth. One is that of Calvary, a cross up on a hill that you look at objectively. And he realized this is sort of the Protestant view that I've kind of had in the back of my mind. The other image is that of uh, the Madonna and child. Our Lady with Our Lord on His lap, and that's really that that uh, that word incarnate, right? Stands in for the, the the word in theology and doctrine, which is wrapped up in the being of the church. So I'd say that's 
that's the main distinction between Catholics and Protestants in this conception. Uh, between Catholics and Orthodox, I think he thought it was, uh, you know, the difficulty was, again, that conception of the church, whether it really is a political kingdom or a purely kind of pneumatically connected, you know, body of, of local churches which are connected somehow. And now, despite differences, how does Newman understand Christians as being able to uh, form a common front against uh, something you mentioned earlier, what we would call secularism and um, what he would call infidelity? So I guess, first off, his diagnosis, what does he diagnose as the problem that we would now call secularism? Well, I mean, I think he thinks that this is the problem, first of all, from all ages, which is that you know, as, as Solzhenitsyn would later say, men have forgotten God, and they tend to do that in every generation. But I think he thinks that uh, although there were many great things that came out of the Reformation, the kind of splits in understanding of things and the sort of, you know, to take that instance, uh, you know, that image that I, that I brought up, that sort of sense that the truth is out there is a very vulnerable one because, you know, we're all looking at it. But if, if in the image of the our Lady and the Child, Mary and Jesus, the church is wrapped up, then you have to stay together in communion. I think that he thinks that there's a breakup in the communion of the church, which ultimately leads to people, you know, they can look from various angles at the cross on the hill and see different things. And if they, if there's no way to combine them, right, then you have people warring against each other. I mean, he, sa he says, look, in, the, in his essay on development of doctrine, which he wrote on his way into the church in 1844 and 1845, he says, um, what, you know, one of the things is if you're going to have, you're going to have to have truth and a commitment to truth and unity together. And he says some people have settled for a hollow unity, and he's thinking of the Anglican Church, which sort of you don't have to really believe the 39 Articles, or you sort of do. And then he says there's other groups, serious Protestants who have an attention to truth, but they have no way of combining. And so I think it's that lack of the combination of truth and community that creates then a sense among many people that really there's nothing to this. These are just warring groups with their own little, little ideas. It's almost like a fragmentation of belief and practice and, and communal life. Does that make for space then for greater skepticism or sort of putting God and the divine at arm's distance? Is that? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's, it's that fragmentation that's problematic because, excuse me, you can't really, if you can't really point one thing, Christianity as a whole, but instead it's, you know, as, as modern, many modern New Testament and early church scholars say, you know, many Christianities, then many people just conclude that, well, this is all just sort of groups of a family resemblance who take off on philosophical or, you know, theological tangents. Um, and so we really don't need to take, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're all right, maybe they're all wrong, but we can stand at arm's length from that because there's nothing that I really have to do. Which really makes his understanding of the development of doctrine all that more important, right? And as you mentioned, right, some would depict the early church as being a number of different faith communities. But in the development of doctrine, isn't he trying to show that, you know, this this thing that is the church is just organically unfolded over time, but yet it's still the same thing, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's what his discovery is, is that 
no, it's still there, right? I mean, I have to become Catholic because this thing is still there. And some of his most beautiful passages in the essay on development of doctrine, you know, have these sort of hypotheticals. You know, imagine, imagine Ignatius or Bernard or Athanasius, you know, were walking around today. Would they go to the big, the big, beautiful Anglican cathedral or would they go to the small Catholic chapel along the way? I think we all know where they would go. Um, so, you know, you, you know, whether you're convinced by that is going to depend upon how far you followed them along the way. But at this point, he thinks that that's, that that's something that's visible. But, uh, you know, as Lenny Bruce said, you know, when I'm talking about the church, you know which the church I mean. And mm -hmm. I think Newman thought the same thing. And, you know, I was interested in, in listening to your talk uh, at Anselm House, though this shouldn't lead to a certain type of Catholic triumphalism, right? Because we've, if we understand the church in the way that Newman does, right, as sort of uh, having received this fullness, then <laughs> we're all the more responsible then, right? And all mm -hmm. the more, um, you know, the call upon us is all the more strident in a way, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that when Newman came into the church, there were a whole ton of people who came in after him as converts, but uh, during his ministry, he was not the sort of the convert maker that some of the other people were, like Frederick Faber, who, you know, came into the church with him and, you know, came into the oratory and then it split. But Faber was in London and bringing in Lord so-and-so and Lady Who's Watts, and they... You know, Newman wouldn't get very many, but Newman would say to people, look, getting people to really convert is a very difficult thing because you want them to convert for real. And that's a very complicated process. And then not only that, but he was very well aware, well aware of the weaknesses of the Catholic Church in England and around the globe. And he said, you know, what we need to do is create Catholics who know their faith and love the Lord and we need to build up our own church community so that when people do convert, right, they're not then turned away by, by the weakness and the, you know, the sort of the secondhand nature of this. I mean, it was very critical of particularly Catholics who didn't read scripture. And he would often say, look, we have enough papal statements about people reading scripture, but people really, you know, Catholics don't do this enough. And thus, when they read these skeptical biblical critics from Germany, or as the case would be in, in England in the 1850s and 60s, then they don't have any allegiance to these stories, no sense that in them is the truth in some sort of mysterious format, and they're easily willing to give that up and throw it away. I'm wondering, you know, just to change gears a little bit, uh, you mentioned just a second ago the notion of the visibility of the church, and so I guess you know, maybe a two-part question is, you know, how important is the visible sort of ecclesial unity for Newman? And then how does that relate maybe to his appreciation for liturgical or sacramental life? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that he thinks that that visible communion is, is very important uh, because it is something that people see. Uh, you know, I mean, he, you know, he says, look, people take broad views. And what he means by that is you can have these very complicated you know, arguments about apostolic succession and about the nature of the development of the papacy. And of course, you know, he worked on all of those things. But when he says people take broad views, right, they look at something and they evaluate it by what's on the outside. And he says in the in the Grammar of Ascent, his 1870 work on, on epistemology, he says, like, people have said that, you know, you, you know, that the reality of the Catholic Church should be as visible as the sun. And he says, and in some ways it is. 
but he was well aware that that it took a lot of work for that to be to be the case and that if you just simply rested upon that the external visible aspects without building up the internal the visible would crumble away and that's that's what he saw happening in Europe in his day that's what we see happening here in America to a certain extent now um, so he so this is you know this was very important to him and the liturgy itself was 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 a part of that um, you know the oratorians he founded the oratory a, a kind of religious community of diocesan priests who are bound by promises and not by vows but who work together and live in community um, and oratorians are known for their devotion to the liturgy and, and he very certainly was as well. He wasn't one of these sort of sacristy rats. In some of his later letters, he'll, he'll write to friends who know all these, these materials and say, look, we have a bishop coming in, and I can't remember <laughs> how this works, and when do you take off your hat? You know, so it's not as if he was one of these people who was obsessed with the details, but he was certainly well aware that that, that worthy celebration of the liturgy in a, in a real way uh, was, was a key for many people. And he worried about questions about church architecture. You know, in the in the 19th century, many people under the uh, influence of Augustus Pugin were under the impression that you know Gothic is the only real Catholic architecture. And he would he would say things like, "Well, you know, in an abstract way, I agree, but nevertheless, I prefer more of the Romanesque." And same thing with music. He would say, "You know, for practical purposes, he actually used Beethoven during the." And this was, you know, for some people, this was not, you know, this was not to be tolerated. But, but he, but he had real principles about the celebration of the liturgy, and he also had a, a great sense of the breadth of the church. Now, maybe that doesn't include the St. Louis Jesuits or something, but he has, he has a pretty big openness to different, different cultural forms that have happened through history. I can't imagine that he wrote, you know, the development of doctrine and had traveled, you know, through the Mediterranean and didn't have a sense that there's a diversity of legitimate forms of liturgical prayer and all that. Yeah, he, he had a great love of the Eastern Fathers. And I mean, he's, you know, one of the ways in which he's great is that he combines a kind of Eastern theological sense with a sort of Western ecclesiological sense. He pays attention to both the inside and the outside. Which, which maybe brings us to the idea of conscience in this whole picture, which obviously Newman is so well known for. People know that Newman wrote about conscience, even if they don't know what he wrote about it. Um, so how does that feature into this whole picture of the distinctions between Protestants and Catholics? And, you know, why would he have a certain serenity for those that he knows aren't in full communion with the church, but nonetheless seem to be, you know, in a good standing with the Lord? Yeah, for, uh, for, for one thing, I mean, he acknowledges that conscience is an ecumenical heritage. When he writes about his great chapter on conscience in the letter to the Duke of Norfolk after uh, the First Vatican Council, he talks about, you know, an ecumenical heritage of understanding conscience as being this aboriginal vicar of Christ, this voice, which is an echo of an echo of the Lord's words to us. And he says, everybody understands this. Right, that this is true conscience, not the counterfeit notion of efficiency or you know beauty or fittingness or what what you can get away with or any of these sorts of ideas. So he thinks that Protestants have that notion of conscience, and he thinks that many of them are acting in good conscience. He he does not take the attitude. I mean, I've talked to some Catholics, I've debated some people on ecumenism, and sometimes they'll say, well, you know, every Protestant past the age of reason, you know, age seven you know, really knows or should know, you know, what they're doing. And of course, I'm thinking, you know, what were you like when you were seven? 
um, you know, you took things from your parents and you accepted them. And particularly if you were a good child who obeyed the commandment to honor your father and mother, you listened to what they said. Um, Newman understood that many of the people that he was talking to had been reared in the faith. They had had many, if they were Christians, they often had valid baptisms and they were acting in good conscience. And he understood that the Lord uh, would work with that. He tended to use a language that's perhaps different from, you know, 20th, 20th and 21st century language. He would often say that there were extra covenantal mercies being attached, uh, you know, for these people. Uh, but, you know, whereas we would more emphasize the reality that, well, if you're baptized, you really are a Catholic in some way. Uh, but nonetheless, he understood that God worked through these channels, these legitimate sacramental channels, but also through the conscience, which is our first understanding of God, and that those who followed that conscience as far as they could, he could have a good hope for them. And indeed, he could see that many of the people that he talked to were in good conscience, and they were doing, you know, basically yeoman's work for the Lord, implanting this idea that there is no truth or that there's no no theological truth worth worth listening to. It, the, the sacramental uh, idea, of course, that God has bound himself to the sacraments, but is not bound by them seems to bear here too, right? That, you know, God obviously bound himself to the to the church, but works outside of it. In a way, that's an extension of the church, right? Even in hidden, right. hidden manners. Yeah. In his uh, Anglican sermon, The Indwelling Spirit, he talks about, you know, the spirit being the secret life of the world. And the spirit blows, blows where he may. And Newman was, was very confident that there were many people who were, who, who were being guided by the spirit insofar as, as they were capable. And he would say, you know, look, from, from a human standpoint, yes, we can't say any, any definitive thing about things. But he was, in, he was actually in very, uh, you know, a very optimistic mood, particularly in the 1850s and 60s and 70s, when he would, you know, deal with a lot of these people who hadn't become Protestant or hadn't become Catholics. But nevertheless, he could see through his interactions with them that they really were acting in good conscience. And, and he wasn't afraid to challenge people uh, when one convert was leaving, the, claiming that he was having difficulties with belief and about to leave the church. Newman asked him, you know, quite bluntly in a letter, okay, these are very interesting arguments. Have you prayed about this? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that, that was part of his conception is that what we believe is uh, dependent in a large part upon how we respond to God in the, in life, and that includes whether we're actually in, in conversation with God. Just you know, highlighting distinctions and differences, and and um, you know the fault lines between Catholics and Protestants. You know, even with all that being the case, how might there be a common effort against maybe some common threats um, in the present or at Newman's time, you know, talking about secularism, talking about, yeah. um, you know, a lack of you know, one of his favorite things, dogmatism. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Newman, well, for one thing, Newman was in contact, you know, if you, if you want to read his letters, you know, there's a one volume uh, collection of letters by Roderick Strange, came out a couple of years ago, if you want to read all 32 volumes, it's about, you know, 20, 30,000 pages, but uh, it will give you reading for the rest of your life. <laughs> Uh, but he was in correspondence with, with many Protestant leaders, and he actually encouraged many of them um, in the, the church, the Reformed Church in Scotland. He, he actually supported the groups that were fighting against secularism and a notion that the Bible was a purely human document. 
Um, he corresponded with a number of these figures, and he actually quite frankly admitted to them that he thought that the spirit was behind their work uh, and was leading them in what he hoped would be a great re revival of Christian spirit. Um, he really wanted to start uh, you know, something like a magazine or a journal where people could address uh, what we might call you know, ecumenical concerns. Um, he was skeptical about these sort of actual ecumenical groups that people started, but it was because, you know, it's difficult to make that work. But on, on particular topics and particular intellectual projects, that's what he wanted. And he encouraged, uh, you know, like I say, Anglicans and many other, many other Christians of various sorts in, uh, in keeping their faith alive and fighting the good fight and sticking together for the truth. Because he said, look, I'd rather have people be, be uh, in a dogmatic in an erroneous way uh, than to not be dogmatic at all. And these people really do believe in dogma, that there are real truths, capital T, that, are, that, that impinge upon our lives and demand some response out of us. What do you think Newman would think of more contemporary happenings like uh, joint declarations by Catholics and Lutherans on uh, salvation or, you know, I'm thinking of a publication, you know, like first things. Um, is this all in the spirit of Newman or you think he would give it his uh, stamp of approval? Well, yeah, I think he would. It's, it's, you know, it's always tricky to say what would he have thought about X. I think in general, I think he would have liked such projects. Now, I, you know, I have, I have colleagues and friends who have concerns that the joint document on justification skirted over a few too many things. I think the uh, evangelicals and Catholics together statements, I think there have been, what, 20 of them now or something like that, 25 of them. I think he would think that those kinds of informal statements are probably more useful, uh, although sometimes, you know, even those can tend to be a little, you know, maybe they don't get quite into the... It, into the details enough, uh, but I think I think he would have approved those sorts of things in general. I think what he would have been a little worried about is the immediate jump into um, more intimate forms of ecclesial, <laughs> uh, you know, togetherness. Uh, maybe praying with with others was something that he might have might have desired, uh, but you know, I think some of some of the uh, some of the more specific forms of ecclesial sharing, particularly with those who really don't share a Catholic viewpoint at all, I think he would have seen as, you know, too impetuous and perhaps counterproductive, mostly because I think they might give the impression that the dogmatic concerns really aren't important. And, you know, and his point was, we've got to be together apart <laughs> because we think that truth matters. And I'm thinking, you know, some forms of prayer would probably allow for common celebration. Like the liturgy of the hours seems to me like a prime Absolutely. moment where Christians can gather together praying common prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously, you know, if you're celebrating the Eucharist, you, you would want a shared understanding of that, especially uh, the, the, the robustness of, of the Catholic understanding of the true presence. Um, so that wouldn't allow for common celebration um, yeah that's the kind of distinction that i think i think he would probably make is uh where we actually can get together let's do so but let's not pretend and paper over real real divisions which have real meanings i mean you, you know it's one of his famous lines from his uh tamworth reading room letters is that you know real christianity entails you know claims of truth and claims of truth you know require yeses and nos 
And yeses and nos basically entail division. And that, that's just a part of, uh, of claiming this truth. And that's, that's only what the Lord said, right? That, you know, I came to bring, bring division as well uh, as unity. Right. Uh, I guess maybe a general question to end, um, and it's a big one, especially for someone like Newman, but what makes him a shaper of the Catholic imagination? Yeah, I, I think what makes him uh, a shaper of the Catholic imagination is his ability to put uh, the, the contingency and the messiness and the, the, all of the strange details of history together with an understanding of that capital T truth, capital D dogma, that is absolutely true in such a way that I think is, is very persuasive to people. Um, he, he had a gift for seeing how God works in history uh, amid all of the details in order to give us something that we can rely on and that aren't just opinions. Um, and I think his great, his great gift, you know, if you want to talk about the mechanics of how he shaped the imagination, it's his gift for analogies uh, and images. Uh, when he talks about the development of doctrine, he has all sorts of images. One of my favorite ones is when he talks about how, uh, you know, an idea from scripture will be seized on by some early, early father or theologian, and he will write something on it, you know, develop it in some way, try to interpret it, and then it will percolate through the, <laughs> through the history of the theology. And, you know, that image, you know, he's, what are we getting? We're getting theological coffee, right? It's better than just water. It's better than just ground up beans. No, it's something that nourishes us. And I just think that's the way, you know, you do things. Uh, he says at one point in one of his uh, Oxford University sermons that really the task of the writer is to be elusive and to suggest to people trains of thought. And that facility that he had for using those images and making those analogies and making seeing parallels is really something that does suggest thoughts and helps people move down the track of, of their own thoughts about how best to serve the Lord. You know, the great thing is, is that Newman uh, also gave us hope too, uh, because as he saw the onslaught of, you know, what he called infidelity or secularism, he saw that it was going to be terrible, but he saw that in every age of the church, this gives us an opportunity to explore sides of the word of God that, you know, are designed by God to be brought out and to be used by us and to be loved so that we would love God evermore. Thanks to Dave Devil for his time and insight into the life and work of Cardinal John Henry Newman. I thought we could have continued talking for another half hour, so hopefully we can catch up with him down the line. Next episode, we'll continue looking at the work and life of John Henry Newman, particularly in relationship with his thinking regarding the development of Christian doctrine. One of those components of his body of work that many people have looked at since its writing and have appreciated deeply his insights into the historical unfolding of God's revelation over time in response to the particular conditions of human societies and, and individual lives as well. And we'll see there, as I hope you do throughout the entirety of, of this string of episodes on Newman, that the personal and the intellectual and the spiritual are never divorced for Newman from one another. They're always part of the integral whole, and they develop and unfold over time in response to the particular conditions of our lives. And that's a, it's a really fascinating 
component of Newman that he highlights with particular clarity and eloquence. And I hope that comes across over the next three episodes, as it did, I think, in this present one as well. So I'm excited to take a look at that unfolding of Newman's understanding of the development of doctrine, which will be the focus of next episode. Until then, let's continue journeying further up and further in. <laughs>